It's the 26th of June in the year of our salvation, 2008. And this is Father Z, Father John Zulsdorf, with another podcast. Today we are going to have some audio clips from various sources, such as interviews and also sermons. For example, sermons delivered by Bishop Bernard Fellet of the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, there's an awful lot to do, so let's get right into it. I think you all know at this time, if you've been reading the blog, that's what does the prayer really say, wdtprs.com, and also listening to these podcasts, that I am pretty interested in liturgy and the language of liturgy, either in the Latin original or in translation. And I'm very interested in what is going on with the Latin language in the Latin rite of the Latin church these days, especially in the wake of Summorum Pontificum, Pope Benedict's motu proprio, by which he de-restricted the older preconciliar form of Mass. See, one of my concerns is that Latin will be segregated away from uh, the Novus Ordo and used only in the older form, and I don't think that's a good idea. So I'm always interested to hear how Latin is being used in the Novus Ordo. Now, recently I was at a meeting of the Acton Institute, the Acton University, that was held in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And while I was there, I had the pleasure of interviewing a young priest from Nigeria who told me about his experience of using Latin with his people. This is pretty interesting. Let's listen to the clip. I'm here at the meeting of the Acton University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've met a wonderful priest from Nigeria, and his name is Father Pascal, but I'm going to ask you to say your whole name so that I don't mispronounce it. Pascal, would you say your whole uh, name? Okay. I'm Father Pascal Tochuku Ekediegu. And where are you from? Kalidas of Enugu, Nigeria, in West Africa. Okay. Now, Father, you're a parish priest, right? Yes, I am. a pastor, and uh, uh, you have uh, also a station that you serve in addition to your parish church? Yes, uh, in the parish where I am now, St. Andrew's Parish, Omoka, in Enugu. Uh, I was posted there August last year, 22nd to be precise. And when I came in, uh, to my surprise, uh, when I wanted to have a benediction on a Sunday... I introduced Latin, but the response was so low. About two or three people joined me. So you you wanted you wanted to have exposition and benediction, benediction. of the blessed sacrament, and so you do this, but but people didn't know what to do or how to respond. Maybe so if you said panem de cello prestitistiais and nobody did anything. Yes, exactly. Okay. Only about two people could join me. And you did it in Latin, though. I did right? it in Latin, oh, though. Okay. Yeah. So I was a kind of. Uh, Surprise! I, I I came to ask them. So you don't use Latin here. They tell me they don't use it often. I then told them we must start using Latin because why, it why is the language we, of the church. Okay, it, but it's because it's the language of the church. But were there any other 
cultural reasons why you would want to use Latin also? Yeah, personally, when I use Latin, both in benediction, in any prayer and in mass, I feel at home. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do the people also like Latin? Do they? The people lack Latin. The problem is that many priests presently shy away from Latin because when I began teaching them Latin, I discovered that they, they were enjoying it, though it is hard, but they were enjoying it. They would say, Father, continue teaching us. We want to, we want to use it. We want to learn it. So once they, once they started using Latin, they wanted more. They wanted more. Exactly. They wanted more, more of Latin. Mm-hmm. Now, ma- many of them can say the, the Osalotaris, the Tantumego. And during the Easter period, I also t- took my time to teach them the Eche Lignum and every other thing. Eche Lignum for Good Eche Friday. Lignum, yeah, for yeah. Good Friday. I did. And the, the, the response was so high and encouraging. So now I think maybe if we keep doing this in many rural parishes, I think the, the, the language of the church will be recovered, mm-hmm. and the church will go a long way. Well, so now there are moments like, like exposition and, and benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. How about Mass? you have Mass in Latin? Yeah, every first Sunday of the month. Mm-hmm. I made it a compulsory that people should come with their Latin texts. And you look at it, you try to mumble the word the way you can. When you do it once or twice, you start pronouncing the words. So every first Sunday of the month, the commons must be in Latin. Yeah. So you don't expect that it all has to be uh, perfect. Uh, you just want people to begin learning and not be afraid of, of learning. Yes, exactly. I want them not to be afraid Practice so that they don't perfect. shy away from Latin. I know they can't be perfect, but maybe by the time we do it for a year or two, we, we, we grow. We have something better. Now, uh, in your area, I assume that, that maybe there are different tribal languages being used. Are there more than one? Or do people speak, speak Igbo in your area? Yeah, I just have one language. That's Igbo. Oh, it's Igbo. Okay. Only one language there. Mm-hmm. So, um, how is it coming along? Are people doing pretty well with the Latin? Mm, come again. Are they, are they improving? They're, they're getting better with their Latin responses? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They are getting highly better. Even uh, the uh, Gloria was learned in Latin by, mm-hmm. during Easter. The mm-hmm. Gloria, they sang it in Latin. And the Credo, they can now sing it in Latin. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We, we, we went into the, uh, the Paternoster before I came out. But they were picking up. Mm-hmm. So I think before the end of this year, all the commons at least they will be able to render them in Latin. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say, given your experience that you're having in your parish, what would you say to priests elsewhere in the world, say, for example, in England or the United States or other countries about Latin? Because sometimes I think, like you said, some priests, they shy away yeah. from it a little bit. You know, they think that maybe this isn't so useful. What would you say to them about using, maybe starting Latin in their church? To be honest with you, I used to think maybe that uh, in places, places like England, the U.S. and all that, they use Latin. But I, I got a surprise uh, last Sunday when I celebrated, celebrated 9 o'clock Mass at St. Albert, Houston, Texas. I introduced a simple Latin. The reaction I saw showed me that, oh, these people are not conversant with Latin, or they don't want it, or they don't use it. I don't know. But I should advise priests who are in these places to try and use it once in a while. In the, at the beginning, people may not welcome it, but when you use it often, 
People may just like it. It's the, the old elderly ones who use Latin those days, they like it. Yes. And they should also encourage the younger ones too to imbibe Latin. Because it makes us feel at home and it's our language. We can do it with Latin. That's right, that's right. And it would be wonderful also for those times when people come together from different countries in the world. Yeah. They don't have to be divided by any language. Any language. They can all yes. pray together in the yeah. same language. Because Latin in Nigeria is Latin in Cameroon, it's Latin in America, and it's Latin in Europe. So it binds us together wherever we are, wherever we come from. Well, thank you, Father Pascal. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece of news. I really enjoyed hearing about that. Thank you very and much. And I do too. Thank you, Father. Thank you. You know, I just can't help but wonder how intellectually slow some priests and bishops, liturgical experts and so forth, think people in the pews really are. You know, I, I just wonder also what it means for the church when priests and people don't pray in the language of their right. The Latin Rite Catholics should use Latin. Ukrainian Catholics should not abandon Ukrainian. It makes sense, right? I mean, every religion in the world has a sacred language. It is entirely reasonable to have a language of unity and identity for worship. Not only that, but using Latin, even in the Novus Ordo, is exactly what the Council asked for. It's what the Church wants. We read in the Council's documents, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, that pastors of souls have the duty, the obligation, to teach their flocks how to sing and to speak in both Latin and their mother tongue all those parts of Holy Mass that pertain to them. Now, of course, that's been more honored in the breach than in the observance, but, but there's a new playing field and a new conversation now. Pope Benedict has really pushed the questions forward and changed the conversation. I think it's time, it's time for everyone to start really considering who we are as Catholics of the Latin Church using the Latin Rite and what it means to have a language for our worship. Visiting the family heart Visiting the family heart I am putting dust in my eyes They are putting dust in their eyes Where have they all gone? Yamome Bayera Now, while I was at that meeting of the Acton Institute, I was not only interviewing, I was being interviewed. I was interviewed live on the 13th of June by the Catholic talk radio host Al Cresta, and he was very gracious to me. And here is the audio of the interview. He asked some questions about liturgical translation in my bailiwick, and also about what Pope Benedict is doing. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. It's a great pleasure to be with you, and uh, join me right now 
uh, Father John, Monsignor. No, no, I thought uh, you're yeah. not Monsignor. No, 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 no. I'm just. Uh, well, I've been lied to. Oh well, okay. That Nick has lied to me. <laughs> you know the difference between a regular priest and a Monsignor, don't you? Go ahead. No, well, there really isn't much, but, but a lot of Monsignors just don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> although, although someday if I'm old, if I'm a Monsignor, I can claim to have Monsignor moments, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is much richer than senior moments. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> My guest, Father John Zulsdorf, has the number one visited Catholic blog on the Internet. His primary interest is in the area of liturgy and uh we want to discuss uh, Benedict's vision for liturgy. It is your area of interest, primary interest. Well, it has been on this blog. Uh, the blog grew up out of a column that I was asked to write for a weekly Catholic called The Wanderer. Yes, sure. And sure. Uh, there was lots of question about the quality of our liturgical translations, you know, oh, yeah. whether or not the English prayers we're hearing in church on Sunday actually are meet uh, the, shall we say, the content of the original Latin. So I was asked many, many years ago on, uh, on a, a Catholic uh, site in CompuServe, in the old Catholic Oh, yes, I CompuServe, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I was moderator. Of this, I've been moderator of the Catholic online forum since the early 90s, and uh, people were asking me, Father, Father, you know, does this right? This doesn't sound right. So I started doing a little thing on the Internet. Well, eventually it died out. But years later, the editor of The Wanderer, uh, to which everyone should subscribe, by the way, um, asked me if yeah, maybe we can do something about liturgy. And so I, well, let's revive this old idea I had. Maybe every week I can pick a prayer from Mass that's hmm. coming up soon, yeah. and uh, I can com- I can write about the Latin, talk about the history of the prayer, translate it really carefully, very literally, slavishly, without trying to be cute about it or poetic or smooth yeah. or anything, and then uh, compare it to what you're going to actually hear on Sunday. Well... This got, uh, you know, a lot of people's attention, and I've been doing this column now for about eight years. Well, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, we have to use the best, uh, uh, the you know, tools of social communication as best we can. Uh, so why don't I start a blog? You know, I didn't really even know what fun was really, but I could do this maybe <laughs> to archive my articles. And well, uh, because liturgy tends to interface with life. Yeah. I'm not only talking about liturgical prayers, but I also wind up talking about lots of other things, mm-hmm. whether it's mm-hmm. the bird that visits my feeder or what's going on. And, you know, I kind of stay away from politics, but maybe other cultural, social issues. Sure. I sure. just branch out, and uh, and uh, it's been uh, it's been quite a ride. The it's thing lively. Exploded, it's very lively, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's a little livelier than I would like it to be. But, <laughs> you know, okay, you know, patience, patience. That's you know. good. That's good. Uh, Talk to me about these translations. Uh, I'm I'm curious. I I I'm I've not done any work in translation, so I'm speaking simply as one who has been through many different Christian liturgies. Uh, I returned to the Catholic Church in 1992. I'm a convert also. By oh, the way. yeah. Okay. I so I, I spent a lot of time in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Lutheran liturgy. And I, uh, it struck me when I returned to the Catholic Church that um, uh, the the language, the language was uh, fairly pedestrian. Yeah, dumbed down. Could yeah, that be a way to yeah, do it? yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't understand why that would be the case because it seems perfectly appropriate for a. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to. 
translate in translation. You don't want to give things an artificial dignity that aren't there. But you, it seems to me in liturgical translations, you want to maintain some sense of awe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pro, it needs to be appropriate to the use, and I, and that doesn't seem to be um, uh, as common in uh, Catholic translation, American Catholic translations, as in uh, even in the Anglican. Well, the, the Anglican uh, tradition goes back to you know the earlier the Book of Common Prayer, yeah. and uh, those were of course uh, translated in a in a culture where everybody knew at least the people working on these things really were. Uh, well-trained in Latin and yeah. Greek, yeah. and I mean, they could read the texts, they knew what they said, and uh, they rendered them also with a certain measure of style. They yes, were, that's They true. weren't attempting to bring it down to the lowest common denominator. I think, as a matter of fact, even then, when uh, people weren't necessarily uh, as uniformly educated as we are today, uh, they didn't believe that people were so stupid that they couldn't understand the prayers. Right. I mean, they maybe would right. have to you know, stretch up to reach them. Maybe they couldn't grasp everything immediately or yeah. whatever. But, you know, there would still be something there that could also uh, l- speak to an interior understanding that what I am now hearing must be very important. Yeah. It must have real weight. And calls and me beyond myself. Yes, it does. That's right. It requires me to, to, to extend and expand. Uh, outward rather than just stay within my own consciousness. Now, liturgical prayer, like you say, shouldn't be so so strange that you don't recognize anything in it, but it cannot also be simply reduced to um, everyday talk. It should everything that happens in the liturgy should have something to do uh, that that takes you outside of yourself that brings you into contact with mystery. So it can't be just ordinary everyday language. Now, the earlier ideas of translation uh, of liturgical texts tended to emphasize immediate comprehension by the most people. And while there's value to that, there was a great deal lost. For example, at the same time as you're going to make a choice to to help uh, this group of people over here maybe understand a little bit better, what about all these other people out there who long for something more, something deeper? You know, the the way that I look at it is, you know, a, a grown man can, you know, eat cream of wheat or, you know, pureed carrots or, you know, whatever, like a, a little infant might for a while, and he might survive on it, but he isn't going to thrive on it. Mm. At a certain point, you want to, you know, like a porterhouse and a, you know, a glass of Cabernet. That, I mean, we have to have more yeah. right, to feed our spiritual lives. And so now, the new norms for liturgical translation issued by the Holy See require that all of our liturgical books be brought to a different standard of accuracy. In other words, now uh, our liturgical translations, which are being prepared, they're being discussed by the bishops as they meet uh, the translation, uh, are going to much more closely stick to the content of the Latin prayers, the originals, as well as their style as much as they can, too. I mean, a Latin, English, different styles. Something that's very difficult to get a Latin prayer into English. Mm-hmm. But uh, the new norms really are helping uh, to, uh, to establish a higher quality, a higher standard. I've seen some of the drafts. I think we are going to be very, very happy. Oh, good. Because we need the content of the prayers, which aren't just words or abstract concepts. The content of the prayers of Holy Catholic Church is a person. It's Jesus Christ who's speaking to us in those words yeah. in the church. 
and we can therefore, you know, be enriched by them and have a relationship uh, with Christ in a new way through liturgical prayer. Yeah, but we've got to have what the prayer really says, and that's why my column in the paper is "What does the prayer really say?" Yeah. That's why my blog is "What, what does, does the, the prayer, prayer really, really say?" say? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember uh, in scanning uh, blog there was some uh, discussion over whether the word "ineffable." should be used mm-hmm. in the prayers. Uh, some, one person saying, that I don't understand what the word means. Uh, a word like that, uh, even if one doesn't immediately understand what it means, it seems to me that it doesn't take too long to find it, figure it out mm-hmm. uh, in prayer. That's right. Uh, it also, because it's a prayer that's going to re- be repeated, and it's a prayer that's actually you know, printed in, yeah. a, in a booklet or in a, in a hand missile or something, you can actually look it up. That's also, you know, possible for people to do a little work. But let's let's go beyond a word like ineffable, which is, you know, still I think used by most people, even in daily speech. Yeah. You know. Yeah. How about a harder word? How about something like consubstantial? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Like that we would hear in the creed. Well, these days we say one in being right. with the Father, right. which you know, theologically is wrong. I mean, an ashtray is one in being with the Father. Otherwise, it wouldn't have being. It wouldn't have being at all. Right? Mm-hmm. But if we say consubstantial. Oh, what an interesting word. I mean, what does this mean? Maybe this word actually, this technical word, this difficult word, might spark someone to go beyond just saying the words and ponder, wonder what it is. And it can be also explained to them by the pastors of Holy Mother Church. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I don't understand. That, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I expect to be stretched. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the church. And you also don't expect to be treated as if you're too dumb no. to understand no, harder things. You know, and that's I think I think sometimes in the desire in the desire for uh, making prayers understandable, which is a very laudable thing, perhaps sure. they fell into the trap of thinking that people weren't very smart. Yeah. I think people are smart yeah. and I think that we can handle uh, more than what we've had, and thank heavens we have this new uh, set of norms for translation because the new prayers, I think we're going to be very happy with. Well, um, can you, I mean, uh, we have a lot of material from Pope Benedict XVI or Cardinal Ratzinger on liturgy. Um, what does he, what would he like to see happen liturgically that's not happening now? Well, one of the things uh, that we have to consider is an overarching issue for uh, for Pope Benedict in uh, a very common phrase that we hear, this hermeneutic of continuity, right? He gave this speech to the Curia back in 2005, and he contrasted a way of approaching not only the council documents, but also our liturgical life and everything else, history and art and everything, like everything that was old was bad so they had to throw it out the world didn't begin in the Catholic Church until the Second Vatican Council it created a rupture in church it created a rupture in our identity as Catholics well what he wants to do is he wants to create a continuity between who we are and who we've always been as a church stretching back through the centuries because if we don't know who we are we have nothing to say to the rest of the world that's right that's and right. so little liturgy for him is the tip of the spear in this. This is why one of the most important things that we are going to see in this whole pontificate, I am absolutely convinced, was this document by which he de-restricted the use of the older form of Mass as it was before the oh. Second Vatican Council, the so-called Tridentine Mass. It's a document called Summorum yeah. Pontificum. It's so hugely important. You, okay, so you, you 
you do believe that that uh, will have long-standing effect. It will exert what I call a gravitational pull yeah. on the way that the newer form of Mass, which is far more common in our parishes, is celebrated, especially younger priests who don't have you know aging hippie baggage from the 60s and all right. that kind of stuff. Right. As they learn the older forms, which maybe they never experienced in their lives, it will change how they think about Mass, how they see themselves as priests, and that will have a ripple effect in their parishes and among the Catholic people uh, whom they are ordained to serve and to put into order through holy orders. Father Z, thanks so much. How do people get to the uh, blog? WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? <laughs> what does the prayer really say? We'll have a link to our website. As long as I'm on this interview thing, on the 25th of June, I was on the air with talk radio show host Hugh Hewitt, who wanted some insight into what is going on with the Holy See and the Society of St. Pius X. Now, I didn't have a lot of time with him, but I tried to hit some of the main points for the listener who might not know much about the issue, and here is the audio. 34 minutes after the hour, America. A little detour now for a fascinating uh, aspect of religious life in the world today. If many of you know what the Society of St. Paul X is, it's a, a group that's in schism with the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the people who follow it is a theologian who writes on the, uh, on the blog, on the Internet quite a lot, Father John Zolsdorf. He uh, blogs at uh, HTTP col uh, colon colon WDTPRS, which stands for What Does the Prayer Really Say? Father John, welcome. It's good to talk to you. I am very pleased to talk to you. And may I make a, a correction right away? Please. It's the Society of St. Pius X. Oh, did I say Pius? I'm Saint sorry. Paul yeah, the Pius X. Yeah. yeah, the Pope. It's an easy mistake. Now, now, tell me, Father John, first, where do we find you today? Well, right now I'm in the United States. I spend a lot of my time in Rome. But uh, I'm back on my home turf and very glad to be here. Well, that's great. And tell people how to find you on the web, because I've read you a lot, but I think you've got one of the most unwieldy URLs in the world. Yeah, isn't it awful? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the, the URL actually grew out of the name of an article that I write every week for a national Catholic newspaper, international paper called The Wanderer. And it's a weekly. And uh, so the name of the blog came out of the name of the article, What Does the Prayer Really Say? It was on uh, liturgical translations originally. But if people want to find me, all they have to do is look up Father Z, like the letter Z, 
And and that's the I will also link to it at hughhewitt.com, America, so you can find it. Now, uh, Father John, what's your order? Tell people a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a diocesan priest. I don't belong to an order, and I actually belong to a diocese in Italy, even though I'm from the United States. So I'm an Italian priest in one sense, but I'm of course you know very much an American. And what's your job in Rome? Well, I don't have a job in the Vatican anymore, but I used to work in the office. Uh, that held, that actually was set up by John Paul II to uh, deal with all the things having to do with the same society of St. Pius X and people who wanted to maintain their unity with Rome, even though they wanted to maintain the traditions, especially liturgical tradition of the Church as it was before the Second Vatican Council. Uh, these days I've been working more as a journalist and also been uh, working on a, a, a doctorate in in, uh, in on the fathers of the church. Well, it's great to make your acquaintance. Now, in two to three minutes, I know that's really easy to do, can you tell the audience what the SSPX is and what's going on right now? Because there's some pretty major developments going on right now. Oh, yeah, what's going on is huge. It's really very, very important. Um, the Society of Pius X was established uh, after the Second Vatican Council, which was in the early 60s, uh, by a, a French bishop who had been a great African missionary, just a magnificent man by the name of Marcel Lefebvre. Well, he disagreed with a lot of the things that the Second Vatican Council asked for. And so he set up a society to maintain a traditional approach to religion, uh, to, to liturgy and doctrine. Well, what happened is that there, there came into eventually a conflict with, uh, with the Holy See, uh, because they just weren't going to play ball with any of the reforms that came about as a result. Well, eventually these things came to a head in 1988 when Archbishop Lefebvre and Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger were trying to hammer out an accord between the church and this group. But it fell apart, and Archbishop Lefebvre decided to take upon himself to consecrate four men as bishops in order to continue uh, this society that he had set up and the work that he was doing. Well, that was a split uh, in the church, and uh, it resulted in the excommunication not only of Archbishop of Feb, but also of these four bishops that belonged to this society of St. Pius X. One of these men, Archbishop Lefebvre died uh, subsequently, and uh, one of these men is now uh, the head of it. Well, over the years, when these splits take place, positions can harden, you know, on both sides, and it can result in some bitter, you know, bitter language and feelings and misunderstandings and bickering and so forth. Well, what happened is that Pope Benedict, who, you know, was Joseph Ratzinger, this man is ideally situated in the church to understand all of the people, all of the positions, all of their desires and sentiments. What he has done now is he has extended to the superior of the Society of Pius X, Bishop Bernard Fellet, one of the four men that was excommunicated, five conditions that he wants this bishop to sign off on before the end of this month, in other words, exactly 20 years, uh, practically to the date, uh, since the time that this split with the Catholic Church uh, took place. Hey, Father Zolzorf, can I keep you over the break? You sure can. Great, I'll be right back. We'll get the end of the story, and I'll post the link during the break. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. During the break, I indeed did link the blog for Father John Zolzdorf. Uh His blog, uh, somewhat 
awkwardly named What Does the Prayer Really Say? You'll have to read why it's there, but he's an expert on this split in Rome between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lefebvreites, known as the Society of Pius, Saint, Society of St. Pius X, SSPX. Uh, Father John, as we went to break, you were saying this happened 20 years ago, and now Benedict has extended five conditions for what? For the lifting of the excommunication and return of the SSPXers to Rome? Well, I would say that it's at least a precondition, if not the only conditions. The, uh, the real point here is that, uh, with these five conditions, is that the Holy Father has not asked from the superior of the SSPX to sign off on any doctrinal points or accept any of the really, like, really, really thorny disputed points that have been uh, up in the air all these years. All the Holy Father has really done, and I think this is just a magnificent thing, it's a very gentle but firm move, is he's asked him to avoid in any public speech any kind of like rhetoric or disrespect for the, the Pope or to pretend that he has a higher magisterium, you know, a higher teaching authority is superior to the Holy Father, that he actually, you know, to put himself out there and actually demonstrate publicly that he's interested in some sort of fuller ecclesiastical unity, clearer, more manifest unity with, uh, with himself as the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ. And, and how, important, how important would that kind of unity be? How big is SSPX? Uh, how big would it be? Well, first of all, any split in the body of Christ is a terrible wound. This is not what Christ desired. I mean, he prayed that his, that his disciples be one. And so any time a split can be avoided or a split can be healed is a very important thing. Number two, it sends a powerful signal to other groups uh, that are looking at Rome very carefully or who have had uh, points of uh, disputes about unity, for example, the Orthodox. I mean, they look at the Catholic Church and they've seen all the kind of weird stuff that have happened liturgically with us in the kind of silly season that happened after Vatican II. And for them, for whom liturgy is so incredibly important, if they see uh, strong gestures of unity, more manifest unity, reunion with the SSPX, they will be able, on their part, to understand that they, with their also similar interests and similar you know, concerns for a liturgical tradition that is you know, really traditional, they'll be able to enter into a more serious dialogue. You see, the, there are ripple effects to all of this. And there so are ripple effects. what is your, uh, your estimate of the likelihood of, uh, of acceptance of these five preliminary conditions by the SSPXers? Well, I'm, I am someone who lives in, in Christian hope, and uh, I, I think that, that it's gotten, it's time now, it's just time to move ahead. You know, the Holy Father has kind of made a sort of a, like a papal offer you can't refuse here, you know, because the conditions are really so reasonable and so very gentle. Well, And so I'm hoping, it's my great hope that he will uh, accept these things and do so publicly, and I have a strong, confident sense that he will do so, because if he doesn't, I think there are many members of the uh, priests of the Society of Pius X who really do desire unity with Rome. I mean, I think they all do, really, except the really, perhaps, hard, really serious, hardcore of them. And so 
doing something like this will help preserve greater unity within the SSPX itself, but also will move in the direction that I think everybody knows it has to go. Well, Father John, I hope you're right about that. I appreciate your taking time with us, and I look forward to checking in with you on other issues as we move along here. And uh, and perhaps I'll, I'm going to be in Rome later this summer. If you're back there, I'll take you out to dinner and thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Take care, Father John Zolzor. His blog is linked. Some of you might be thinking that there are a lot of other things I could have added or could have said, but this interview came at me pretty much out of thin air and on short notice, so I didn't have a lot of time to gather my thoughts. But there it is, folks. I tried to be fair, I think, to the issues, to the history, and express my real hope for closer unity with the Society of St. Pius X in the future. I think they have a great deal to contribute to the Church, and I can hardly wait, I can hardly wait for uh, them in an attitude of humility to submit themselves to the Roman Pontiff. So now you've heard about these famous five conditions that the Holy See has offered to the superior of the Society of St. Pius X, Bishop Bernard Fellay. And uh, these conditions are certainly from the, our Holy Father, Pope Benedict, though they were delivered through the intermediary of Cardinal Castrion Hoyos, who's the president of the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei that I used to work for years ago. Now these conditions, these five points, uh, surprisingly, in, in a way, don't lay down any uh, demands about the validity of the Council's documents or the new Mass or anything like that. They're not asking uh, Bishop Fellay, and remember, at the beginning, we all thought that these conditions were being offered to the entire Society of St. Pius X, but later it was clarified that they were being offered personally, directly to Bishop Fellay, their superior. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's you know it really shows something about the generosity and the very and the great gentleness of Pope Benedict that he doesn't go you know any farther than just demanding what is common sense if you're going to have dialogue with someone. Basically, these conditions are saying, if you are serious about being Catholic with us as Catholics, then it's time to change the way you speak about the Roman Pontiff in public, and time to change the way you express yourself concerning union with Rome. These conditions really don't demand any more than that. Show some respect, and show some interest. It's a positive interest. And these are conditions for any further talks. That's reasonable, isn't it? 
So I think that these conditions show the Holy Father's incredible generosity. But what brought all this on? I mean, why now? Why are these conditions being offered now? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, the act of division of the Society of St. Pius X occurred 20 years ago this month. It was on the 28th of June in 1988 in Econ, Switzerland, that uh, the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre consecrated four men as bishops uh, against uh, the expressed will of Pope John Paul II and also uh, without pontifical mandate, which the Code of Canon Law says incurs a latte sententiae, that means automatic excommunication. And the lifting of the excommunication is reserved to the Holy See. Only the Supreme Pontiff can uh, can lift this excommunication. And Bishop Barnard Fillet one, uh, was one of those men. He is now the superior of the Society of St. Pius X. And so it was 20 years ago. And so we've come to a big milestone. It's really an interesting thing. If you stop to consider the psychology of this whole thing, the human dimension of it, there are now young people who have grown up in families who have never known anything other than this separation and who perceive themselves to be within a group that just it's natural for them not to have union with Rome. 20 years have passed, and so it's really time to start getting to work here before the positions harden. But it's also precisely the hardening of the position that are being addressed, that's being addressed in these conditions. You see, I think there was a catalyst event. There was a catalyst. Bishop Fillet preached a sermon for the Feast of the Sacred Heart in Paris on June 4th. And then the meeting with Cardinal Castrion in Rome took place just a few days after that, on the 4th. And then the conditions, the five points, were delivered just after that. So I I think that there's a connection between these events, not only the 20-year mark, but also what happened in Paris. So uh, we have to ask ourselves then, what did Bishop Fillet actually say in Paris that might have sparked a, a, a quick reaction from the Holy See, hard in the heels of this sermon? Well, Bishop Fillet, uh, in a pulpit, called the Holy Father a perfect liberal and then went on to describe how Christ will spew the tepid from his mouth. And I think there was a logical connection between these two things. Now, it's a little hard to know just exactly in what sense he was using the word liberal. He, in the, Given the context, it looks like uh, he was reacting, so it seems, to Pope Benedict's visit to the United States and his discussion in an American context of the grounds of religious liberty and so forth. In effect... Um, he's reacting perhaps to something that Pius XI condemned in the Syllabus of Errors, a kind of a a liberalism in the political religious sense, something coming, flowing forth from the, uh, the French Revolution. And so liberal has to be taken in this old European sense of the word and also in the context 
of the syllabus of errors. So, but aside from that, aside from that, what he did is he he takes a swipe at the Pope. So he gets up in the in the pulpit in in Paris in front of all these people, and uh, about three quarters of the way through his speech. Um, and it's really, it's a homily that just kind of, you know, it rambles. I've listened to a few of Bishop Fillet's sermons, and I I have to say, I agree with an awful lot of what he says. But sometimes these sermons that he gives aren't very well directed, and as he kind of rambles, it seems like he just kind of like warms up or gets worked up to his theme, and then at a certain point he takes a swipe at the Pope, or he takes a swipe at Rome. And it doesn't really help very much. Well, let's just hear for a moment. Let's just hear a little bit of the audio in French of what Bishop uh, Fillet said in Paris. Et maintenant, nous avons un pape, mais bien cher frère, parfaitement libéral. Lorsqu'il va dans ce pays qui est fondé sur les principes maçonniques, c'est-à-dire d'une révolution, d'une rébellion contre Dieu, eh bien, il exprime son admiration, sa fascination devant ce pays qui a décidé de donner la liberté à toutes les religions. Il va même jusqu'à condamner l'état confessionnel. Et on le dit traditionnel. Et c'est vrai, c'est vrai, il est parfaitement libéral, parfaitement partagé. Il y a des beaux côtés, des bons côtés que nous saluons, dont nous nous réjouissons, comme ce qu'il fait pour la liturgie traditionnelle. Quel mystère, mes bien chers frères, quel mystère Et que le Sacré-Cœur nous rappelle aujourd'hui précisément que Dieu vomit les tièdes. Il ne veut pas de ce partage. Lui, lui qui a dit en même temps qu'il fallait laisser livrer au milieu du blé, c'est le même. So what did we hear there? Well, I think the money quote is this. And now we have a perfectly liberal pope, my very dear brothers, as he goes to this country, he means the United States, which is founded upon Masonic principles, that is, of a revolution, of a rebellion against God. And, well, he expressed his admiration, his fascination, uh, before this country which has decided to grant liberty to all religions. He goes so far as to condemn the confessional state, and he is called traditional. And this is true, this is true. He is perfectly liberal, perfectly contradictory. He has some good sides, the sides which we hail, for which we rejoice, such as what he has done for the traditional liturgy. What a mystery, my very dear brothers, what a mystery. Now, what... 
is going on here is uh, he is uh, saying that uh, Pope Benedict is in line with with what was condemned by Blessed Pius IX in the Syllabus of Errors. This is something that the Society of St. Pius X is really dead set against, and it comes back to the Second Vatican Council's teaching on religious liberty and i think uh, frankly the you know the liturgical issue and the issue of the communications and the issue of a canonical structure for the society or anything like that should reunion take place these are all you know kind of easy things to resolve they can be resolved with the stroke of a pen what is going to be harder is a theological discussion revolving around issues like religious liberty what the second vatican council teaches they are really in opposition and uh, so that's going to be the tough part but you know they're not being going to be able to get off the ground unless they actually start talking and i'm not quite sure how that's going to happen if the superior of the society of saint pius x gets up into into pulpits and takes swipes at the pope in this way now you might not think that what bishop fillet said is you know really so bad but you know it it really is uh, what he did whatever he meant by it and i think you know like i said before he rambles and gets a little worked up perhaps whatever he meant by this it wasn't good it was an insult leveled at the pope and bishop fully i think scandalized the faithful in the church and what I mean by that is that, you know, the technical idea of, of scandal, he made it easier for them to lower their respect for the Roman pontiff by his words. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that what a Catholic does? Is that what a Catholic bishop does? Does a Catholic bishop run down the Pope in a sermon in front of people in such a way that he pits the followers, or the faithful who are listening there, against the Pope in such a way that people who don't have his theological agility, and he clearly is a very intelligent, well-read and, and, and thoughtful fellow, the people who don't have his abilities, theological abilities to make distinctions, they're going to be walking away with a few words like Pope Benedict is a perfect liberal or some other label that they understand in a very simplistic way and so really this sort of thing can't be the ground of any serious dialogue between rome and the society of saint pius x now if the society and their members really want to have real discussion and get somewhere then their style of rhetoric has to change and it has to start with their leader and that's the main that's one of the main points behind these five conditions when an irresistible force such as you meets an oh immovable object like me you can bet as sure as you live Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give So anyway, these five conditions come out and the, the blogosphere and the press kind of really 
get into it. And uh, so today I'm reading a, a Reuters story, how uh, someone picked up on a, another sermon of the same uh, Bishop Fillet that was delivered on the 20th of June in Winona, Minnesota. That's the place where the society has their United States Seminary. And he was there for uh, a ordination to the diaconate of some men, and he preached for almost an hour, I think, which, in my opinion, is a bit over the top you know, for an ordination, which is already very long. But, you know, it's like the same pattern. He gets kind of worked up, warmed up to his theme, and without a lot of direction of where he's going, he eventually wanders into making statements about, you know, the Pope or Rome or things that really don't have a a place necessarily at that moment. Anyway, whatever he chooses to do it, however he chooses to preach, I think, uh, just as I found before, he makes great points all along the way that I am entirely agreement uh, in agreement with. For example, he makes a great comment about the reorganization of the curia such that the Secretariat of State is now the dominant curial dicastery rather than the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith or the Holy Office, which was always uh, at the very top of the, of the curial hierarchy but it's been kind of switched around so that now the secretary of state is the uber dicastery and everybody else has to walk around you know pulling their forelocks to the secretary of state in other words the fillet's point is that they put politics on top of faith now i think that's a little bit of a simplification but it is very very close to the mark and i agree with him about that i think there was a, there's a signal that was sent in that reorganization or at least in the way that the practice has been so anyway, I, there, while there are a lot of things that he does say, once again he comes along and he starts talking about you know, the conditions and the ultimatum, and uh, he, he basically uh, sums up Rome's position as, uh, as being an ultimatum that the society of St. Pius X has to shut up, you see, and he comes out and he says, we're not going to shut up. Now, let's hear some of the audio. Certainly, my dear brethren, you expect from me today also a certain update on how are things going with Rome. Are these excommunication or the lifting or the retracting of the decree of excommunication, is it coming or not? Frankly, I don't know. My impression right now is that we still can wait for a while, and maybe a good while. And why so? Because the approach we have towards the question is not the same as the one of the Vatican. I may say this problem, almost these words, they were the words of the Archbishop at the time of the Bishop's consecrations 20 years ago. 
He said, Rome wants a reconciliation. But with this word, they intend, they want to say that we go back to the new. Which is not a go back, but go in. And that's not what we want. He said the perspective is different. They speak of reconciliation, but it is, a, it is an integration in the new. And we don't want that. It is so far that Rome has given me an ultimatum. It seems that the last letter to the benefactors has been not so well received in Rome. They consider it as a proof of pride, of arrogance. And that's what they don't want. And we are not going to shut down our mouth or to shut up. We are still precisely in this fight we have described, my dear brethren. It's still the same story. May have different appearances, still the same. We may say, so what about the motu proprio? What about the mass? That's a good point, no doubt. This reintroduction or the will to reintroduce the old liturgy liturgy of all times back in the church is something very good and we are very very happy of it even if for the time being there are not more or not many many effectiveness it can always come let's hope so but may, let me try to, to give you a, um, a picture the mass is the visible part of this big fight. It is like the tip of an iceberg. The old mass is the tip of the iceberg of tradition. The new mass is the tip of the iceberg of Vatican II and of these modern ideas, what they call the spirit of the council, which has come in with all these reforms which have almost kicked down the church this new spirit this new way of looking at things as if everything is nice everything is good a positive way on the world on the other religions and so we insist in showing all what is good in them that's not false there are some good in them but that's the, that's the tricky point in every evil we have some good and in the worst evil we have the most good it's the most dangerous we know that those who refuse only one truth of our Catholic faith, they may keep all the rest. They may keep hundreds, thousands of truths. 
the denial of only one makes that they have lost the faith. You can insist on all the other points. They have no faith. What they have is a human belief. It's no longer the faith. And this belief is not going to save. Let's go back to our first image, the iceberg. What happens with this motu proprio is as if they would have taken this tip of the iceberg. When we see this, we have the impression, okay, they take the tip, so they take everything which is below. That's not exactly what they did. They tried to take the tip and to plant it on the other iceberg, the iceberg of the new thing. And so we have two tips, and they say it's only one tip. But if you try to go and see and look under the water, what is below, you will see that they maintain that the only thing you can have below is the new thing. But they call it tradition. So it's, it may create a lot of confusion. Twenty years ago, Archbishop Lefebvre, just before the consecration, the bishops of consecration, gave a conference to the seminarians in Flavigny. And he explained them. It's his words. At the time, 20 years ago, for Cardinal Ratzinger, the Council Vatican II is tradition. And that's what they say now. It may puzzle people. But when you look at the realities, you see that it is not. It is not. As if we would pretend that these two tips are only one. No, they are not. The new mass is not the old mass. It may be valid. That means that the real consecration of our Lord may happen. But all what makes the Mass, all these gestures, all these words, they lead to something else. The maker of the new Mass, Monsignor Bonini, said it when he made it. He said, we are going to take out of the Mass everything that might appear like the shadow of an obstacle to our separate brethren. So they have taken out of the Mass everything that could have hurt the Protestants. They have made a Protestant thing. Up to the point that Protestants said, like Max Durian, from now on, we the Protestant, we can take the new mass for our Protestant service. It's theologically possible. Even in, in Strasbourg, in France, the Confession of Augsburg, which are Lutherans, 
they invited their communities to take the new missal, the new mass, for their Protestant service. That means that the Protestants have absolutely no problem in taking the text of the new mass for their Protestant service. How can you say then that it is the same, the new and the old mass? And now we are, so to say, something like at a crossroads. And in a certain way, Rome is telling us, okay, we are ready to lift up the excommunication, but you cannot continue this way. So, we have no choice. We are not going this way. We are continuing what we have done. We have fought now for 40 years to keep this faith alive. To keep this tradition not only for ourselves but for the church. And we are just going to continue. Happens what happens. Everything is in God's hands. If God wants this this trial to continue may continue he will give us the grace we need for it no fear we'll wait for better times that's what the archbishop said 20 years ago that's what we continue to say today of course we have to do all what we can to have this faith to be continued to be preached everywhere this faith to be really and all this tradition to be really back in the church. We have to do whatever we can for this. But nothing else. It is a hard time, my dear brethren. But it's not ourselves who are going to change it. We are in these circumstances. We did not cause them. So we depend on God. Now that was Bishop Bernard Fillet, one of the four uh, bishops of the SSPX, uh, the superior of the society, preaching uh, for an ordination in Winona, Minnesota, the seminary of the Society of St. Pius X in the United States. It was kind of a long, rambling thing, about an hour. Um, and it's really, because it rambles so much, it's a little hard to to cut the audio so um, but I, I wanted to include this interesting analogy of the iceberg that he uses when he talks about what the Holy Father did with Simorum Pontificum his point is, is that uh, that Holy Mass is, as important as it is is really only uh, one dimension of this vast, vast reality, which is the church and her teaching and her tradition and her identity and her life and everything else, and he's absolutely right about that. And it's really kind of an interest. It's a good analogy, but then he takes it a little bit further, and he says that with Samorum Pontificum, what the Holy Father did is he he cut the top off the true traditional Catholic iceberg, 
and he stuck it on to the modernist Vatican II iceberg with all its errors and all its problems. And then Pope Benedict is saying that the two tips are really only one tip. And that Rome is insisting that all of this has to be accepted. Well, no, that's not what Pope Benedict said in Summorum Pontificum. It's not what he has been saying all along. I think Bishop Fillet is wrong about this. I think he is misreading him. Whether purposely or not, I don't know. Maybe he's just entrenched in a position. It's really hard for him to see what's going on. So what Summorum Pontificum does, first of all, is create a juridical solution such that no priest needs to have a separate faculty to say the older form of mass. It removes the necessity of having to have a separate faculty, a faculty that could be removed. The idea is, is that if, you have, if you're a priest and you have faculties to say mass at all for the Latin rite, for the Roman rite, then you also automatically have the right to say this mass too, because juridically, legally, they are considered to be the same right. It's a juridical solution. It does not resolve the historical questions about the development of the right, whether there's continuity or no continuity. It doesn't resolve the theological questions that might arise from comparing the two rights. It doesn't seek to create historical, theological, liturgical solutions. It's a juridical solution. When you say that both missiles are part of the same rite juridically, that opens up the possibility for any priest to say the older form of Mass, and no bishop can say that he can't, provided that he's idoneous, but we'll get into that at another time. So there is huge room for discussion still left about whether or not you know it's the same right liturgically, historically, theologically. And there's no way that Pope Benedict would ever stifle reasonable theological or historical discussion about the liturgy. I mean, that's what this guy is all about. He's been writing about it for years. If the if the discussion was reasonable. He was. There's no way he's going to stifle research and writing and theological investigation of the liturgical issues here, of the continuity or discontinuity between the rites. That's not what he is about. His Holiness, I think, has uh, concerns uh, about the clarity and the fruits of Vatican II himself. And what was going on with the Mass, and, you know, he's got problems with the Novus Ordo himself. That's why he's walking the church back to a point of continuity from a, a time before the council. And I know that in one, speaking of the council, I know that in one commentary many years ago, he wrote that in history it would have been perhaps better if some councils had never been held. Still, Pope Benedict uh, is uh, not going to condemn an entire council because of some flaws. You know, he might call, but see, he's even open to calling into question whether or not it should be held, but then once it's a reality, then you work with it together with its flaws. It's the same thing. You work with the Novus Ordo despite its flaws. And see, but he's taking concrete action here, at least with Summorum Pontificum, and that's the juridical idea. 
to create continuity. And so I think, very much in contrast to what Bishop Fillet is suggesting, he is not saying that everybody just has to accept everything you know, totally across the board, and or like it or say that it's good or say that it's right. I don't think that in anything that he would work out with a Holy See, he's going to ask them what they are not already willing to accept. Number one, that um, not everything in the council was bad. Number two, that the Novus Ordo is valid. They don't. He's not asking him. He's not going to ask him to like it or to like Vatican II, or to think everything in it is perfect. If there are flaws, if there are difficulties, if there are questions, then Pope Benedict is going to be the first one to say, okay, let's discuss them, but let's really discuss them. Let's really get down to work, because that discussion will lead to the truth and will make us stronger as a church. But the discussion must be charitable. And if there are constant, unreasonable, personal attacks on the Roman pontiff, then there is no common ground for reasoned discussion afterwards. Now let me apply a, a tangent here to illustrate my point. Now in his speech in Regensburg in September of 2006, Pope Benedict pushed the idea of the relationship of faith and reason right under the theological intellectual nose of the Islamic world. He held it up for inspection, and he asked tough questions. And he must have known that this was going to provoke uh, some sharp reactions, and maybe even hurt some aspects of the present form of Catholic-Muslim dialogue. Now, he, Pope Benedict might have been a little surprised at the severity of the reaction, but he had to know there was going to be blowback from this. Now, on the other hand, I think we have to accept that he intended to clear the deck fore and aft, as it were, with the questions that he posed in the Regensburg Address. He wanted a serious dialogue to be made possible and not just to go on kind of, you know, status quo. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Einstein that said that you're you're crazy to expect that you're going to get different results if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again without making modifications. So he made a modification to the dialogue. And in fact, what happened, even though there was, you know, turmoil and sharp conflict and great reactions and so forth, a large group of Muslim scholars have now written to the Pope about the issues he raised. And so a new dialogue is pointless. The old way of doing things wasn't going anywhere. Now, on the other hand, to shift this around, we have to start getting somewhere with this discussion of union between the Society of St. Pius X, whom Pope Benedict understands very well. There's no one in, in, the, in the church really better situated to understand all the issues and the people involved and what the history is and what the stakes are. And he is the one who has the best position actually to do something about it. So here he has offered, extended a hand and in this hand are some conditions, but it is a warm and gentle hand, extended firmly, as a father might, but as a father who expects a, 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 certain, a certain humility and submission, and a certain 
gesture of goodwill on their part so that they can actually have a real dialogue. And there is absolutely nothing in those conditions that has to necessarily undermine the entire identity of the Society of St. Pius X. But you can see how this, these, this move is going to send a huge ripple through the whole traditional side of the church. You know, Bishop Fillet in his homily in, in Winona saying, we're not going this way. We're not going to simply stop talking about our concerns. Well, great. I don't think Pope Benedict would want them to. Something really got to But remember that Pope Benedict is the heavy hitter in the church. If anyone is going to engage with him, then he had, with, you know, real questions about Vatican II or religious liberty or anything, any of these theological issues or the points about the liturgy or our identity as Catholics or who we are in the world today, if anyone wants to, you know, go into conflict with Pope Benedict and really talk about him, then he better put on his big boy underwear and eat his Wheaties and pay really close attention to what Benedict is going to say or what his lieutenants are going to say. Benedict is not afraid of theological dialogue and challenges. But his role is now not as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now he is Peter, and he has the role to strengthen the brethren and to be the visible point of unity for the church. And if you address yourself to Peter, you had better do so with respect. And you can address yourself to Pope Benedict, the man, rather than the office, but you had better have your homework done and you had better have thought about your position really carefully and have said it right. Because the stakes are very, very high. Now I think that it may be that you know Bishop Fillet, a man under tremendous pressure in a very difficult situation, a superior of the society, I think he has to go around and he knows that he has to go around and give pep talks to his people, and probably to himself too, because he knows that the stakes are so high. These conditions that were offered to him by Cardinal Castrion are really also being offered to the SSPX. So he has to say something about it. Whether or not he should do it in a sermon, I don't know. That's an entirely different question. But underlying the conditions are very deep questions. Now, theologically, the Society of St. Pius X is being challenged to say who they think Peter is. But on the human level, Pope Benedict is saying to them, come on, let's get at this. If you're serious, let's talk. It's your move but let's put things on the proper on the proper playing ground here
Wow, there was a lot to do today. And um, just like Bishop Fillet did, I guess I rambled a little bit there too. Um, but, you know, the difference is I'm doing it in a podcast. Uh, but, you know, I really, I have to say, I have to express uh, my admiration for, for the man and his points. I think he has tremendous zeal. He has a grasp of important issues facing the church, serious problems that need to be addressed. I just wish that they could all, they could all, in the spirit of of humility and charity, just submit themselves to the Roman pontiff. Because think about the good a guy like him could do within the church. I mean, really manifestly, clearly, structurally, juridically within the church. Because where he is now, it's like he's he, he's... He's mar- he can be marginalized. Even the liberals can point to him and say, look, see, we're loyal to the Pope, and he isn't. Even though the people who are accusing the, the Society of Pius X of you know, being, being wrong themselves might be you know, holding crazy positions. But what he's done now is he kind of has self-imposed uh, some shackles and a gag and blinders on himself. He could do so much more good if he were to lead the SSPX back into the church's fuller unity. And you know, I just want to relish this image. I love the idea of priests of the SSPX attending deanery meetings in dioceses. You know, with Father Just Call Me Bob or maybe one of their bishops also attending a meeting of the USCCB. I just want to savor that image for a moment with you all as I take you out of this podcast. Come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com, Whiskey, Delta, Tango, Papa, Romeo, Sierra. What does the prayer really say? If you're looking for it on the internet, all you have to do is Google Father Z and you're going to find it. And I thank you very much for your patience and attention to all of this. Please pray for me as I will for you.